0: Welcome to Complete Curiosity, the podcast that addresses the big questions in little segments.
1: Hello, good morning, and thanks very much for joining us. Really appreciate your time, given what is happening at the moment and the challenging circumstances. And you may have quite a lot of time on your hands, or you may actually be extremely busy. So. Welcome to our webinar this morning, which is about virtual longevity, 12 tips to business sustainability. And I'm going to introduce you to Alan Watkins. Morning, Alan.
0: Morning, Katie. And good morning to everybody that's listening, wherever you're listening from. Really delighted to be talking to you again today. What I thought we'd do by way of start is just to pick up something I mentioned in last week's webinar, which is the fact that the COVID-19 crisis is undoubtedly a wicked problem and I mentioned this last week and for those of you that are interested in understanding the nature of wicked problems, I wrote a book on this topic so if you want to understand what's going on and why it's going on because we will be facing plenty of more wicked problems beyond COVID and there are a whole bundle of them so feel free to you know get hold of the Wicked and Wise book because it illustrates what wicked problems are, and also the six dimensions, and it's those dimensions I want to unpack a bit more in a bit more detail today, are those six dimensions of wicked problems. Wicked is a sort of technical term for meaning intractable and super complicated, and COVID-19 is certainly one of those. And first and foremost, I want to just give a bit of context for what we're seeing in terms of government response to wicked problems and you can break down one of the dimensions of Wicked Problems is the multidimensional nature of it. And I just broke this down for everybody. I'm sharing a slide for those that have a video version of this broadcast. So most governments are giving people messages about hand washing, social distancing, limiting trips from home, getting communities to shop for each other, the building of temporary hospitals, scaling up ventilation production, recruiting more healthcare staff making sure the supply chains keep moving, particularly in relation to foods and medicine and protective equipment for frontline staff. So that's the bulk of what we're hearing in the media from governments. But that is really only the short-term response to a crisis. Now, that's critically important. You have to do all of those things, of course, to try and break transmission. But it's not the only thing that we really should be paying attention to. We have to think in this crisis even though we're massively preoccupied by the short term, is some of the long-term consequences of this crisis. For example, what we're not hearing very much about is some of the treatment options. So my old immunology professor, Stephen Holgate, is currently in the UK NHS system trialling out a drug called interferon beta, which is an immune molecule, which may be helpful in reducing the damage So we're just not hearing much about the treatment of interferon beta, or some people have advocated chloroquine, or even some HIV drugs in the treatment of COVID-19. We don't hear much about that. But actually getting treatments going and seeing how they do or don't work, and how useful or not useful, that should be part of our medium to long-term thinking. In addition to all those short-term measures, which are critical right now, we also need to be having a much richer debate on vaccination policy and practice. Vaccination is not a magic bullet. It's not a, you know, a magic wand. But we should certainly be looking at vaccination much more closely. And it's complicated because the immune system is complicated. We need a wider debate about health system leadership, health system organization, as well as health system funding. I mean, it's clear that there is not even the best health system in the world could cope with this. So were we properly prepared for a pandemic? I mean, this might be once in a lifetime problem, but when it hits, it's overwhelming the system. So how well prepared? We need to review our health system, leadership, organisation and funding. We need a real deeper investigation for why we keep seeing this, what's called zoonotic transfer. These viruses essentially come out of animals and get transmitted into humans. And we need to understand why does this keep happening? There are repeated viral surges. What's going on? Can we do anything about that? We need to investigate that. We also need to look at our models of charity and what's called pro-sociality. We've got a society that's really set up to reward people being selfish rather than people making money out of helping others. It's ironic that, you know, we can have a guy on the front cover of Wired magazine if he makes millions of pounds doing computer games and it's seen to be a great thing. But, you know, if he makes any money out of saving the lives of millions, it's con- considered to be inappropriate. So we need to look at that very carefully. And Dan Paletta's has done a brilliant TED talk on that very point. We need to review international health system collaborations, especially data sharing. If you look around the world, you know, people are talking about the, the validity of data from different countries And it's a bit of a mess. I mean, the Harvard Business Review had some of the best scientists in the world recently debating this point on data sharing. And it's very difficult for epidemiologists to know what's really going on and the speed of the scale of this thing, because countries are reporting their data differently. One of the arguments about the death rate across Europe, which is sort of seen as the hotspot right now, is that Italy is reporting its death rate very differently from Germany. So some people are saying, oh, it must be the German health system. Well, it's probably in relation to how they report the deaths compared to how Italy report the deaths. So we're just not aligned on the way of data sharing and data reporting. And so that's a bit of a mess. We look, need to also review the interdependencies between the health system and the economic system in any society. So there was some data out yesterday, suggesting that America may go over to 30% unemployment, which is greater than the Great Depression. So when we have health system failure, then it has massive economic impact. And we're just leaning into that wave of economic impact and what what the consequences. So we need as societies to understand those longer term implications and how these systems affect each other. So that's all in addition to all the short-term measures we have to take. But those aren't the only two things we need to think about. We also need to think about you know, how we lead people at these times. And so are we as societies really valuing helping others more than helping ourselves? And we need to take stock of that, and take a long, hard look at that, develop much greater levels of pro-sociality and cultivate more meaningful connections. We are, at the end of it, social animals. We need each other. So societies really need to prize that much more highly or at least have a debate about how we prize it or whether we prize it and develop, you know, networks and imbue those networks with care and compassion rather than just greed and manipulation. So there's a huge cultural review that we need to go into, as well as, you know, reviewing our own personal performance and our personal contribution to this I mean, the questions that's often arisen in the last couple of weeks is what do I need to do? And I've uh, written LinkedIn articles about the importance of before you do anything, you have to regulate your own emotion because if your own emotion is panic and anxiety or worry or concern or fretting, then it it impairs brain function. It it makes you much more likely to make bad choices and not not being able to think clearly because your biology is all over the place because your emotion is all over the place. So maybe one of the things that we'll learn as human beings at an individual level is we have to regulate our emotion as the first step in the response to any of these types of crises. In addition to that, you know, build that inner resilience and the well-being, which will protect us to a greater extent, and also review our purpose and priorities as human beings. So, in essence, you know, that means waking up, owning up to the problems we're creating, growing up and becoming more mature and more sophisticated, and showing up differently. So, these are the multi-dimensional aspects of the response to COVID-19 and what slightly concerns me is at the moment it's all short-term action and we're not taking a multi-dimensional approach which then begs the question of how much are we really going to learn and how much are we really going to change as a result of this crisis.
1: Alan that's that, that's a fairly comprehensive uh, review of the, the, the four dimensions there. I mean. The people really and it's an awful lot for people to, to to take in and and do they really need to understand all of that stuff
0: at the individual level no i mean but the leaders absolutely so leaders of any system whether it's a healthcare system a governmental political system a, a business system leaders really need to take a multi-dimensional approach to these things and understand that all problems are multi-dimensional they're not just problems in the it world of doing, you know, what do we need to do? They're problems in the we world of culture and values. And they're also problems in the I world of quality of thinking and and health, resilience and energy. So the leaders absolutely need to take a multi-dimensional approach. Individuals, you know, if they just regulate themselves and follow instruction in terms of what do I need to do in the short term, that's probably enough. So I would say for individuals, Self-regulation is absolutely critical because it alters immunity, and we'll come on to that in a moment. So, leaders, it's really follow the instructions in the top left and manage your own emotion. And but but that's what the individuals do. But the leaders absolutely need to take a multi-dimensional approach. And it's their failure to do so, which means we keep hitting these wicked problems, and we're going to hit more after COVID nineteen. It may not be a health crisis, you know. It might be climate change crisis. It might be a food crisis, a political crisis. There are many of these wicked problems. And so if we don't understand why these are happening, they will keep happening and we'll keep having the problem.
1: You talked about what we wanted to call this webinar virtual longevity. What do you you mean by that?
0: Right, so if you look at a business, as we're just starting to glimpse the potential economic impact is there are many things that individual organisations can do to try and help survive this crisis and accelerate into this virtual or digital world and create longevity because it's clear to anybody that thinks about it very long that this is a different world. We're now in a different world, and the sooner we adapt to this different world, the sooner we'll be able to develop this sort of longevity for ourselves as individuals, for teams, for organisations, and for economic and business systems. So I've laid out a few principles here some of the top 12 things that you might want to think about So where
1: does
0: one start? Well, you start with the I. All leadership starts with I. It's an inside-out game, so it always starts in the I domain, you know. And so I've laid out sort of four things here in the I domain. So leaders need to be much more visible in a crisis when people are worried and concerned about the future. Leaders need to step up to the plate. So some of the things we're advising our clients to do is if you're a leader of a of a team or a division or organisation or even a CEO. You need to be much more visible. Now, in a digital world, that means, you know, maybe a video recording or at least an audio recording perpetually transmitted out to your staff on a daily or even weekly basis. And you've got to give a view, a point of view, POV, a point of view about, you know, how this is affecting your own business. You've got to encourage some togetherness, some social cohesion or pro-sociality, within your organisation and you've got to encourage people to manage their energy and the leader has to bring more energy in the time of a crisis. So visible leadership is incredibly important in the eye. Also, it's important, I think, to have some humility rather than think you can control what's going on or control the destiny or control the outcome. This is bigger than any one individual. So you have to have some humility in the face of the uncertainty and not give false promises that you know what's going to happen tomorrow or how it's going to play out. So if, you're, if you've got some humility in the face of that, what it will encourage will be a certain amount of sensory capability. You've got to sense how things are changing rather than try and predict and control. You need sense and respond to the crisis. There's a good
1: balance there, isn't there, between giving that sort of level of, of grounded sort of, not certainty, but, but leadership and, and not panicking and, and that humility of actually nobody really knows what's going to
0: happen.: Yeah, so you've got to tell the truth, but to the fourth point uh, third point is r- remain optimistic and positive. You've got to face the reality. Nobody's helped by you know, false platitudes in, in situations like this. So face the reality of what's really going on, call it, say it like it is, you know drop the fake news and tell the truth about what's going on. But also, do some, you know, offer some optimism and positivity as a species, as humanity. And we will get through this and hopefully we'll learn an enormous amount about who we are and how we are. And that will be ultimately to our benefit. So, we've got to move away from what some of our clients would call the chief worry officer, the CWO, and develop, you know, the sort of CRO, the chief reassurance officer, if you like. We've got to move away from the chief panic officer to the chief positivity officer the chief anxiety officer has got to become the chief optimism officer so we've got to percolate as leaders some optimism some positivity and as I said in last week's webinar because it's good for business but it's also good for your immune system to be more optimistic and more positive even though this is a very difficult situation. It's important for well-being to be optimistic and positive. So that self-regulation is central to leadership success. So those are the four things within the I domain within any business to create that uh, virtual longevity. Virtual longevity isn't just about getting the tech right. It's how we show up as leaders and individuals in the tech space, in the virtual space.
1: And that kind of togethering, that that sort of the, the we space that you you talk about, that, that becomes obviously more difficult, particularly at the moment where you can't physically be close to people. So how, how do we start to lean into that like now and, and when we get through this?
0: Well, well it is more difficult because we're just not used to it. So that's what we've got to develop the communicational capability is how do we connect in a meaningful fashion with each other over, over Zoom or Skype or Teams or whatever platform you're using? And hopefully, one of the things that will come out of this is the ability to connect in a meaningful way and develop some some communicational subtlety and nuance, which means speaking more to the point, being briefer, being more respectful of each other's time, and stop having surface conversations and get into deeper, more meaningful conversations. And if we do that, then we'll become very adept at connecting in a meaningful fashion in a virtual space. One of the things we're seeing in our client base is... Clients, you know, and and certainly the leadership of organizations has to review the communicational demands. We see so often in so many organizations that people are working hard literally just to keep the leader informed. Now, when people are busy handling the crisis, having to constantly work to update, you know, more senior people is a pain. So leaders really need to review, look, do I really need that frequency of update with that level of detail? Why don't I start trusting the people? Because if I'm asking them to just work hard to update me all the time, they can't get on with their job. So setting the right reporting level is, is really crucial and basically backing off and maybe having slightly less reporting in the middle of a crisis because people need to get on with their job rather than just create information for leaders.
1: It almost sort of seems a strange thing to say, isn't it? Less is more in a crisis. The the way people think is, well, actually, I just, I need to know more and more and more.
0: Well, it's not, it's less of inappropriate, you know, information transfer. People need to get on with their job and be trusted to get on with their job. So there's a real thing, and we'll get to this about delegating authority in the it space, and giving people real role clarity and trusting them to get on with it rather than demanding that they let you know every five minutes about what's going on in the front line. Leaders need to trust their people more, set that role clarity, delegate the authority, and trust them. That's one of the four things in the it space. And that should lead to less of a burden on constantly reporting upwards. Let people get on with the work, essentially. And so that's the second bullet on in the we domain. So improve communicational capabilities, the first thing, setting the right level of reporting is the second thing. And then there's a central piece is understanding the way that your people are already connected. Because it's possible with, you know, network analysis, and we certainly offer this to some of our clients, is to do some workforce planning. So if you get some data by looking at your organization of how uh, everybody's connected to everybody else, you can use that data to workforce plan. So if people get ill, where does the pressure redistribute to? So if you look at the way that people are connected using some network analysis technology, you can see where the pressure is going to apply, who's likely to get ill, not because they've been infected, but just because they're overwhelmed from an unbelievable demand. You can use network analysis to, to plan that. So even when the world's uncertain with the right tech, you can actually plan into the uncertainty and predict where the problems are going to arise before they arise. And that's the power of network analysis. So organizations should really be embracing that. And then finally, in the we space, leaders have to work much harder to increase team cohesion because we don't want heroic leadership. This is way too complicated than one heroic leader to be able to figure it all out. We need leadership teams to use the collective wisdom of that team, their collective smartness, and that really means that teams have to really cohere in a much more effective way. And um, A big part of that is understanding what drives our reactions and our responses, which is essentially our value systems. So understanding value systems becomes increasingly important in a crisis. And understanding, you know, how we might all have different set points depending on our childhood history as to how reactive or inflammable or flame resistant we really are as individuals so there's loads that can be done to ensure virtual longevity within the we space
1: and just one question from Robert Waters what are examples of technology we can use for workforce planning
0: well as I said network analysis so we're more than happy to help any clients and we've been doing this already is you can put out a survey digitally to all your clients ask nine simple questions about how they're connected And then our data analytics team can literally pinpoint who in your organization is under the most pressure and who's likely to buckle, not from the virus, but who's likely to buckle from the sheer demand from their colleague. um, And therefore, who do you need to support? So if you have that data, you can see how to make your system work more effectively, how to support the right people, how to deploy your resources to make sure that people don't buckle. Because it's at the moment, it's like doing organisational Jenga for most organisations, is if you randomly take individuals out, either because they've buckled under the pressure or because they've become ill, then most organisations are then sort of scrambling if somebody goes down, as it were. Now, you can plan that with network analysis technology. You can see and do some sort of analysis of if person A disappears, either because they're buckling under the pressure or because they get ill, what will be the consequences on person B, C, D, E, E, F, G, and so on. So you can use network analysis to do that. So organisations, there is this technology available. They need to be leaning into that and using that right now to minimise the impact and optimise the support to the people who are under the most pressure as the system copes with the crisis.
1: So you could actually tell if you took out, you know, the, the, the CEO became ill or, or the leader of a big division, what, what the actual implication...
0: Um, Yeah, exactly. And I spoke to a divisional head recently, and their planning had amounted to, well, if I become ill, my number two would take over. And when I said, well, what happens if your number two becomes ill as well, was the answer I got. I mean, it's no planning. You can't run an organisation. So virtual longevity requires a much more disciplined, data-driven, analytic approach to plan your way through this crisis, not just you know shoot from the seat of your pants and just on a wing and a prayer, and hopefully people will be all right. That's way too risky. The good news is you can plan your way through with the right tech.
1: Okay, cool. So moving on to the the IT domain, I think we've got some information about network analysis that we can include with the recording of this as well. But you're talking about the 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 IT domain being obviously really, really important, but the I and the we, um, you've specifically chosen to go in that that, that order. So perhaps Mm. you can explain a bit more about that.
0: Well, uh, you know, as I said, leadership starts with I. So one should always start with I, and the first step of the I is self-regulation. So if I can show up better and we can show up better, then our chances of coming up with the right answers in the it is much more enhanced. So our approach is always I, we, into it. Unfortunately, business is very traditionally it-addicted and obsessed about the it because there's so many things to do. And you'll see most of the governments around the world, their response is short-term it, almost ignoring the I and the we dimensions. And that's a mistake in my view. The problem is multidimensional, even if you don't realise it's multidimensional. I mean, people's panic is an I problem. There's individuals panicking. So we have to take account of that and we have to offer strategies for that. So we've covered some of the the top four I tips and the top four we tips. In terms of the it tips, as I said, delegating authority, establishing role clarity, and then trusting people to get on with the work would be sort of tip number one in the it domain. So getting real role clarity and the authority delegation is unbelievably important to create virtual longevity. And then there's a very interesting point about balancing the empowerment with direction. Because, of course, if you just empower the front line and give the front line no direction, that's not really empowering. That's abdication. So we need to get the balance right between leaders giving direction and clarity on what needs to happen and balance that with the empowerment. Because if you just give all direction and no empowerment, that's micromanagement, that's you know, overly controlling, that's dictation. That's not empowering. So we have to get the balance right between empowering the front line, but also giving them clarity and direction. So that's top tip number two in the it domain. Um, Can
1: I just interrupt there? We've just got a question from Mary Reid about how how can NHS team members, not the leaders, help each other to manage their overload within an already stressed system?
0: Well, it starts in going back to that's an I question, which is, you know, how can I dot, dot, dot? So when that question arises is, the first response always is manage yourself. So how can I help my colleagues in the frontline of the NHS is, well, before I try and help my colleagues, manage your own emotional state, which means, first of all, do I even know what emotional state am I in? Am I in panic? Am I in anxiety? Am I in worry? Am I in concern? They're different things. So if you don't know whether you're on the planet of panic, worry, anxiety, or if you don't know which planet you're on, you're lost. So there's an emotional literacy thing that has to to be developed in most human beings. I mean, it's very interesting in the work that we do with organizations is when you ask people to look inside and identify what emotions are you actually feeling on a regular basis. Most human beings don't know more than a dozen different emotions or experience a dozen dozen different emotions in their life. And there are actually 34,000 emotions it's possible to experience. Most people don't know more than a dozen so there's some
1: a people have learned a few more in the past week.
0: I'm sure they have, unfortunately, negative ones. So there's a, an emotional literacy that we as human beings and as a society, we need to get much, much better at this because the antidote to anxiety is different than the antidote to panic. The good news in, in here is that there are 17,000 roughly positive emotions. And so if you can start to cultivate some of those, whether it's things like I've talked about already, optimism... You know, tranquility, peacefulness, appreciation is a really important one right now. Curiosity, there are very many helpful, positive emotions it's important to cultivate. So if you're in the frontline NHS, you know, being resolute, being determined, being caring, being compassionate, these are all different emotional states. Most human beings, if you say, I want you to turn on a state of resoluteness, most people can't do that why not because they don't even know what resolute really is they know what it is as an intellectual concept they don't know what it is as an experience so most people cannot sort of on demand turn on an emotional state of resilience so what that really means is most people are sort of you know drifting all over the universe of emotions you know one bit of bad news one piece of social media one scare story you know they're suddenly over into panic again and and so Human beings need to cultivate and develop the ability to control their own emotion. And that has to happen as an eye task before you start to support each other. Because I can tell you for a fact that if I am resolute in the face of a difficult situation, I can infect the colleagues around me with a similar degree of resoluteness and you know the good news is is that positive emotions are just as contagious as negative emotions so if i am determined in the face of difficulty i can infect others with that determination so if i control me it will help others control themselves
1: Okay, so Mary, I hope that's answered your questions. If not, um, please, please come back to us. Alan, you were just finishing off the, I think we're halfway through the it domain there. I just want to ask people if they've got any questions. I'm just looking at the time here. If you've got any questions, please share them in the chat or the Q&A. Really, really would appreciate that. Do you want to just Right, so just to finish off the,
0: the, the top four tips, we said delegating authority, trusting people and giving them role clarity is tip number one. Secondly, balancing empowerment and direction. Thirdly, instilling some basic digital discipline. Because so many of us are now interacting digitally, communicating digitally is a completely different kettle of fish than communicating if you're in the room with each other. And the fourth thing is pivoting and adapting to the current commercial environment. I mean, we've seen many organisations go into sort of shutdown panic mode but if this goes on for months, we're going to have to learn to operate and transact and trade in a virtual digital environment like we never have before. So we're going to have to adapt to this world and see how society can move forward. So we, we should really be accelerating into this digital virtual world rather than, you know, just seeing it as a temporary thing. And part of that is being open to possibility, open to the possibility of how we change our business models you know, how we change our meeting schedules, how we change the governance of our organizations. And we've got to be flexible and we've got to learn much faster. So our ability to learn anything has to accelerate and our ability to deploy that learning. So we develop organizations need to be something called deliberately developmental organizations, DDOs. And so the more we'll develop our capability the more we will able to create longevity in a virtual world. But I just wanted Alan, to come... Alan, yeah. sorry,
1: can I just interrupt one second? Just a question from Katie Lynn. Please, can you say more about digital discipline uh, at some point? That's exactly content. what I was
0: about to come back to. Okay, so In, in the digital discipline, I've got your top 10 digital discipline notes. And I'm there gonna, you go, Katie. I'm showing, I'm showing this as a slide. So when you're you know, in a digital platform world, there's some basic rules that one has to embrace... You know, first of all, obviously, good video connectivity. Getting light on your face so people can actually see your face because that's how we're connecting with each other is that we're seeing each other's face. So make sure you're not sitting in a darkened room with light just over half your face. Minimize the distractions. It might be amusing to see on, uh, you know, BBC News, uh, a child coming in in a baby walk or in a wife scrambling to drag the baby out while he's being live interviewed on television. It's very entertaining, but actually, if we're, going to have, if we're going to do our work in a digital space, you've got to minimise the distractions. So a quiet space, no interruption, as much as possible, muting when you're not speaking, and raise your hand if you've got a question. See, these are just basic disciplines of a digital world. Digital world. And also, we have to be prepared for an increased level of intensity. When you're literally seeing 10 or 20 faces up close into a camera, you can see every flicker of an eyebrow, So it makes the interactions much more intense. So you have to be prepared for that. And we recommend that people do more frequent, shorter sessions of interaction because they are very intense. And allied to that, taking longer breaks and moving around during those breaks, else you'll discover that it feels like your chair is stuck to your backside for 12 hours a day. So moving around is incredibly critical and taking longer breaks. And if the meeting is being facilitated, allow the facilitator to do their job. Allow them to invite you in rather than jumping in in that natural style that we would do if we were in the room together. Be a bit more respectful of each other and be fully present. Concentrate. I mean, so often, you know, when people are in digital meetings, they've got a second screen going with their email. So they're pretending to listen. And that's kind of disrespectful. And also it's impairing your ability to gain value from that meeting. So you're not supporting your colleagues by running two or three screens. You need to be disciplined and focused and present and being respectful of each other and be brief when you communicate and if you're in this sort of zoom environment certainly you can use breakout groups and engage properly in those those types of things and resist the temptation if you're running a meeting to have sidebar chats in the private part of the chat messaging and finally You know, take notes. This is a great opportunity to really accelerate your ability to learn as a human being. And it's not the fact that we go through difficulties. What's really important here is how much are we going to learn through this COVID crisis about ourselves, each other, and the way that we set up society. And will that learning result in a change in the way that we show up as individuals, teams, and organisations? So one of the big benefits coming out the back end when we come through this COVID crisis is how much have we learned as individuals, teams and organisations, and have we used that learning to change the way we function in a positive way? Have we actually developed as, as human beings? Have we developed our culture? Have we developed our team capability? Have we developed our way, our ability to connect in a more meaningful fashion? And have we developed our business models and ways of working? And if there's any silver lining to this, we may leap forward uh, as a species in how we show up as individuals, how we show up as teams and how organizations change as a result. So there may be a benefit long term from having come through all of this.
1: Thanks, Alan. I just want to throw out one last request. If there are any other questions that people might have, please ask them now. So we've covered, we've covered an awful lot of ground. Is there just like one, one or two sentences, Alan, that you want to kind of finish off with?
0: Yes. So when you're wondering about what should I do? faced with any difficult, whether it's COVID or, frankly, other things that you'll face next year, I mean, hopefully this won't last more than a few months. We're already seeing encouraging data on the stats from northern Italy that things may be plattering in Italy and we're maybe two or three weeks behind Italy. This won't last forever, and certainly next year we'll get beyond this. But when we will meet another crisis, for sure, and the first port of call, the first thing to think about when you're in the face of a difficulty or a crisis manage yourself first and we've released apps to help people do that so you can download the universe of emotions just to start to help people cultivate their emotional literacy and emotional regulation so I really hope that one of the main takeaways for individuals individual human beings that we become much more effective at emotional self-regulation because that is an unbelievable game changer, not only in terms of your immunity and your well-being, but your, inter- your ability to deal with a crisis and think clearly, your ability to interact with each other and support each other and come up with adaptable innovations and solutions for your business. So emotional regulation would be my main takeaway message for people. It's the start point. If we've piqued your curiosity or you've enjoyed anything we've talked about in this podcast, please subscribe, email us, or just visit our website at complete-coherence.com.